So as you see on the back of your bulletin, title for this sermon is Hope in a Vain World. And I'm sure most of you in here are familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes. It's after Proverbs and it's uh, wisdom literature. And most commentators, most scholars, when they're looking at Ecclesiastes and its historical significance, mostly agree that it was written by Solomon. Some clues that help give it away. As he says, the preacher, he was the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Not only those titles, but also the vast wealth and riches and physical pleasures that are described in this book of Ecclesiastes match what we see in other books of the Bible given to Solomon. And it's almost kind of a sad story. This great King Solomon has all this wisdom and and worldly power and riches Only as we see this word time and again used in Ecclesiastes, the word vanity. The word vanity. Now, before we begin, I think as we read this, and as you go through Ecclesiastes, you can almost get a depressed attitude, thinking, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here, and why are we doing what we are doing? Is there any point to what we are doing? And let me read two verses, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, to really set a context here so as to not have a depressed state as we're reading through Ecclesiastes. The first verse is 1 Timothy 6.17, where the Apostle Paul is addressing his young disciple, Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But listen here, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In the beginning of the Bible, we have Genesis 2.15, where God and Adam are in the garden. And what do we have here? What does Moses write? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So let us bracket ourselves here that life is not completely futile. We see that God has given us all things to richly enjoy, and we have been put in this world to work of it, to work our garden. So as we begin here, let us take a couple verses in chapter 1 to really set the context in the portion of chapter 2. Let me go ahead and read the first two verses of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. This is Solomon, the vanity of life. He says in verse 1, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We see that word over 30 times here used in Ecclesiastes. What does vanity mean? The New Geneva Study Bible has a great definition of the word vanity. And they say the Hebrew word means breath or mist. And hence, what is insubstantial, useless, and futile. And as we see going down here, Solomon is kind of lamenting as he's older in his life at this period, if he, if he wrote this book. He's looking back over his long life, all that he has accomplished, and he says, all is vanity. It's futile. It's missed. It's temporal. And we see as we go down through here in the first chapter, we see verses 4 and 5, where Solomon comes to an understanding. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets and hastens to its place where it arose. 
As the sun rises and sets, so do the lives of men and women start. They're lived, and in the blink of an eye, it's over. The remainder of the book is a reminder that the desires of men and their end is the same from generation to generation. The time of Solomon is the same as now. The sun goes up in the time of Solomon, and it comes up in our day. All that we are seeing, nothing new is under the sun. These are some practical words for our lives. Interestingly enough, Monday night I play softball at a local softball park, and I went into the bathroom. And as I'm, as I'm in there, I see three little boys at the sink, and they're making mud pies in the sink. And a thought occurred to me that in the time of Solomon, a thousand years ago, and in our day, two things are certain, is that little boys love mud, and they love to be stinkers. And I really think that, we, that grass that really understands the pain that Solomon is going through is the pain that we are going through. Now let us continue here as we begin chapter 2, the main body of our text today. In the first two verses, read this. Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth or gladness. Therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter madness and of birth what does it accomplish solomon understands the problem and is seeking a solution to it he understands that the lives of mortal men are vain what is the purpose to it and he is trying to experiment here in these next verses to understand and to find out how he can quench that thirst and desire for purpose and hope in his life I think most sane people in this world want to find perpetual peace. They want to have meaning. Almost every person at one point or another in their lives has searched for meaning. I think the old adage, the old saying, what is the meaning of life? And I think every single person in this room, Christian and non-Christian, has asked themselves at one point or another in their life, what is the meaning, what is the purpose of my life? And I think we hammer it time and again, but we're seeing it in our own culture. Not only in our own culture here in the West, but all around the world, there is a monumental struggle for meaning in one's life. How can I find permanent satisfaction? Not in myself, but in the whole life that I live. But people, society, and our culture can't find it. And as Solomon is going to show here, They can't find it, and they won't find it. It's a futile search. Some of the reasons, some of the symptoms of our society and of our culture, some of the things that we're seeing going on around us is a pursuit of the struggle of finding purpose and meaning in our lives. I think we see it for abortion on demand. You can do whatever you want and have no consequences whatsoever with the actions that you take over a one-night period. We're telling five-year-olds that they can take hormones and change their bodily structure so that they can be happy. We're telling people that if you take a pill, you can simply fix your life. You can finally be happy. You can achieve permanent satisfaction. Watch this, and you'll be happy. You can sleep with whomever you want, and you can finally achieve happiness. And you can take from whomever you want, and you can find happiness. All of this is a symptom 
first and foremost of sin. It is a symptom of sin, but it's a symptom of people trying to find permanent peace and happiness in their lives. Some people said, I don't know who this quote was, uh, who this quote was quoted to, but they said, we are entertaining ourselves to death. Entertaining ourselves to death through sports and entertainment and media, rampant consumerism with ever-increasing amounts of debt, most, if not all, for what? To find lasting peace and happiness in our lives. And it's all to no avail. As it was in Solomon's day, so I can stand here and tell you today, so it is in our day. And let me read this first. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.12, a summation of all that we're discussing. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the vast majority of people, no hope and without God in this world. That is why we see the things that we are seeing in this life. We've identified the problems that there is no hope and there's no permanent peace and joy in this life, only temporal. Now let us continue in this passage. Now let us investigate and examine all that Solomon did to try to alleviate his problem of purpose and everlasting peace. Here too, or here in chapter 2, Solomon in his younger years is seeing how and where he can find lasting peace. Through his experience, he will enlighten us in generations after him and generations in our own day of how to find it or how not to find it. And as we continue on here in verse 3, He says, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their life. He's going to search. He's going to see. He's going to dig and try to discover what brings lasting peace into his life. And note here, too, at the end of this verse, till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. This isn't just an experiment for Solomon, but this is an experiment for those in his kingdom and those in his time period and in subsequent generations. He is going to try to discover what brings lasting happiness. And we see here by his preceding works what is going to try and bring him lasting happiness. Now, let me go ahead and read verses 4 to 8 here. This is the discovery process of Solomon. This is him trying to understand, trying to accomplish, and fulfill his meaning. Let's read here in verse 4 to 8. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole section. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and of flocks and all who were in me, uh, before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and all the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments 
of all kinds. Solomon built great palaces and mighty public works. He even built the temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Magnificent structures all across his kingdom. He had vineyards, rich food and amenities all around. He had irrigation canals for yearly, steadily watering for the food of his pleasure. He had people who obeyed his every word and got him anything he asked for. Isn't that great? It's always wonderful when you have younger siblings who go and do your bidding. And to a greater extent, Solomon had thousands of servants to do whatever he wanted to do. He had huge flocks. He had, he had camels. He had donkeys. He had sheep. He had cattle. And if you remember, in the ancient world, having huge flocks was a status symbol of wealth. Think of Job. Think of Abraham. All the huge flocks that they had. Solomon may have had far greater flocks than they had. Huge amenities. He had silver and gold as one cannot imagine. Even in the 21st century with paper currency, gold is still a status symbol of choice for the vast majority of people around the world. As in the time of Solomon, he had wonderful singers to soothe his ears. Think of his father in 1 Samuel 16. David was called upon by the servants of Saul to come before Saul and to play his harp to soothe the spirit of Saul. And Solomon had that. He had the best and brightest and greatest musicians in all of the kingdom to soothe his soul. And we last year see in in verse 8, and in my, the New King James Version says, in musical instruments of all kinds, this word for musical here is the only word here found in the Old Testament for musical. In some translations, the uh, NASB, the New American Standard Bible, has this. Verse 8, let me go ahead and read it. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers, and that word musical, and harems as well, the delights of a man's heart. Not only did he have the physical pleasures of this world, he had all of his sexual desires quenched. Anything you could ask for, Solomon had in the ancient world. Let me go ahead and read a couple more uh, text here from Second Chronicles that delves deeper into his great wealth. Second Chronicles one fifteen. Also, the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. He made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowlands. Second Chronicles nine thirteen, then seventeen to nineteen. We see here the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was six hundred and sixty six talents of gold. Verse 17, moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps, and with a footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne, they were armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the armrest, and twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the step. Nothing like this has been made for any other kingdom." Further detail of the vast, unmitigated riches and power of Solomon. And interestingly enough, in verse 13, 666 ounces of gold. I thought that was kind of ironic as I was reading this text uh, this, uh, this week. But I, I tried to do some equivalences of what that equals in our day. It's about $1.5 billion worth of gold on an annual basis came into Solomon's kingdom just in this. This didn't account for all of the trading that came back on an annual basis and all of the tribute. 
$1.5 billion over a 40-year period of time of his reign, $60 billion in gold. All that his eyes ever saw, all that his ears ever heard, he had. There was no treasure or pleasure that he could not find or receive from the ancient world that it could not provide for him. Verse 9, he continues on, So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Not only was he greater than David and Saul in wealth, but he was greater than all of the pagan kings that ruled Jerusalem before him, before it was conquered by David. He again says he became great, greater than all those who were before him. In verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all of my labor. Now, there is some satisfaction for Solomon here in all of this wealth. It's not completely futile, and it's not completely useless. He does say here in the second part of of, of verse 10, For my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And I think for many people in this life searching for permanent peace, there is still some measure of temporal pleasure and happiness that we get from our labor. And so here Solomon is happy for what he has done. He finds some semblance of joy and pleasure in what he did. John Gill in his commentary says this of Solomon, And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. That's the quote. Though this sense is only mentioned, all are designed. He denied himself of nothing that was agreeable to him, that was pleasing to the eye, to the ear, to the taste, or any other sense. He indulged himself in everything, observing a proper decorum and keeping himself within the bounds of sobriety and good sense. Not only was his eyes satisfied, but his ears were satisfied and his tongue was satisfied. And his touching was satisfied. All encompassing, all of the senses of Solomon were in complete satisfaction. And we see all of these treasures listed here of Solomon in verse 11, I think is the most striking verse here in this passage. All of the glory that Solomon has. And what does he say in verse 11? Then I looked at all the works that my hands had done. And on, and on all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. There was no profit. As I was reading this, you would expect all of these worldly riches of Solomon that he would have some semblance of perpetual and lasting peace and enjoyment in his life. But if he's Writing this text at the end of his life, he is looking back on all of the works that he has done and realizing, what's it for? It's for naught. All of these physical pleasures are passing away. Why is he upset? The rest of the chapter 2 tells us because of the temporal aspects of his work. His wisdom is counted as little as he ends his life. The fool will die as he does, as we'll see. As you see, as you read the rest of chapter 2, we won't do that for time constraints. But he realizes as he's a wise man, the fool 
is going to die the same way he died. This great, this great man, Solomon, dies the same way as the drunk, as the prostitute, as the layman. He dies the same way. In verse 17, he says, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it was meaningless and chasing after the wind. He goes on to even say he despairs his day because he realizes he has to leave all of this treasure to those who come after him. And interestingly enough, his son Rehoboam, in his fourth year of reigning after Solomon had died, turned his heart from the Lord, and the Lord caused Shishak, Pharaoh of Egypt, to come up and take over Jerusalem. And you see in Second Chronicles what Shishak did is he took the golden shields that Solomon had crafted out of pure gold. What Solomon was worried about is that a foolish descendant would come after him came true. All that he had done had been taken away just a few years later. So he can truly say there was no prophet under the sun. And you may be thinking at this point in the sermon, my goodness, I feel depressed. What is the point of it all? But as we'll see here as we finish up this chapter, there is a glorious hope. There is a glorious hope. As Solomon, as he is ending Ecclesiastes, he finishes it in chapter 12, the last two, verse, uh, the last two verses of this great book. He comes to his senses, it appears. He understands what the purpose of it all. He says in verse 13 of chapter 12, let us hear the conclusion of this whole matter. Let us wrap it up. These previous 12 chapters... Let me wrap it up in two verses. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. After all that Solomon had did, he comes to realize that the goal of man and the purpose of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? It's not rhetorical, someone can say it to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. Charles Bridges said in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is to bring out into the clear the chief good, the true happiness of man, and also in what it does not consist, not in the wisdom, pleasure, honors, and riches of this world, but in what it does consist, the enjoyment of in the service of God. Do you want lasting joy and peace and pleasure in this world and in life to come? It is to obey God, to fear God, and to keep his commandments. That is the conclusion of Solomon after his lifelong trial and discovery process of trying to understand what brings true joy. It is to fear God and to keep his commandments. A couple points of application. Life. Don't attach yourself too much to the things of this world. It's difficult to do. Each and every day I struggle with it. But your life will be like a vapor. Things, positions, relationships, and achievements won't bring true peace. I am not saying that there is no purpose to this life. That's not what I'm saying at all. Remember 1 Timothy 6.17, God has given us richly all things to enjoy. 
And even Solomon in Ecclesiastes brings it up a couple times what the, what the temporal purpose of man is. He says in Ecclesiastes 3, 12 and 13, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. Because why? Because it is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. If you are a Christian, you can understand that our lives are a gift of God. We are to richly enjoy all that we have been given from God. Enjoy the steak dinner that you eat. Enjoy the family time that you have, but in the context of realizing where it came from. It's not the end-all be-all, but they are gifts from God. Understanding the purpose and context of the lives that we live he says in Ecclesiastes 9, 9, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of thy life, of thy vanity, which he has given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity, for this is thy portion in this life, in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Enjoy those whom you're around. Husbands enjoy wives. Wives enjoy husbands. Husband and wives enjoy your children. Because these are gifts from the Lord. And to find an answer of it all, if you want permanent peace, Solomon again says, obey God's commandments. Do you want everlasting peace? Do you want everlasting joy? It is to put your hope in Christ. There is one thing eternal in this life. It's your hope and trust in Jesus Christ the Savior of sinners, the one who, the only one who can give you forgiveness of sins and make hard hearts soft and sinful hearts turn to him. That's the only true satisfaction and joy in this life. Romans 5.1, the Apostle Paul says, as he's writing to the church in Rome, he summarizes the gospel. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, that word justified meaning having been made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, eternal peace. Let me put a caveat to that. Believing in Jesus Christ does not guarantee an easy life, nor is it perpetual happiness in this life. One thing R.C. Sproul said that drove him uh, more crazy than anything else is when Christians would tell other people that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all your worldly problems will go away. That's often not the case. Hebrews 11 is a perfect example of that. All of the people that were persecuted and killed for the sake of Christ, their lives were not easy. But what is, is your eternal hope and rest and joy in Jesus Christ. As I end here, stop trying to find eternal peace in a terminal world. The experience of Solomon is enough to prove that it cannot be found. Permanent peace is in the God-man, Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. That's how you find eternal peace and happiness. It's in Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Our Lord, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the experiences of for the experience of Solomon that you will